0: Hi, Fresh Ed listeners. We're on holiday for the month of August. We'll be back in September with new episodes, including the next round of Flux. I've already listened to a few rough cuts, and they're going to be great. While we're away, please consider sending us your recommendations for future guests, as well as donating to Fresh Ed to keep independent media alive. Fresh Ed is nothing without you. So thank you for all your support. And I'll be back in September. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Did you know that today there are more forcibly displaced people than at any time since World War II? The total number comes out to roughly 65 million. That's roughly one out of every 113 people. On Earth Today, I speak with three professors from Teachers College, Columbia University, about their research project on refugees, which is being funded by the United States Department of State's Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration. At Teachers College, Mary Mendenhall, this is, Mary Mendenhall. is an assistant professor of practice in International and Comparative Education. Garnett Russell,
1: this is Garnett Russell,
0: is an assistant professor of international and comparative education, and Elizabeth Buckner,
1: hi this is Elizabeth Buckner,
0: is a visiting assistant professor in international and comparative education. The images western media typically show of refugees are overwhelmingly focused on the people risking their lives to get into Europe. But there's a problem with
2: The part that's missing from the media story is that 86% of those displaced are actually going to neighboring and what we would consider quote-unquote developing countries in the global south, where it is assumed and I think hoped that it will be a temporary
0: stay. The growth of urban refugees raises particular questions when it comes to education.
3: And so I think the big question really is where will these
0: refugees in urban areas go to school? But what can governments do? We do see
1: in our research a a tension between formal education and non-formal education and sort of the best way to to approach the problem.
0: Mary Mendenhall, Garnet Russell, and Elizabeth Buckner, welcome to Fresh Ed. The three of you are working on a research project um, looking at refugees around the world. Um, And refugees obviously have made quite an impact on the Western media for the last few years. And we usually see pictures of UN refugee camps or these uh, boats filled with refugees trying to cross the Mediterranean, um, trying to get into Europe or, or even many refugees trying to get into Australia. Um, Can you explain why these images don't actually portray the reality of most refugees?
2: Yes, thanks for the question.
0: Um... Let me just jump in here. I know their voices sound similar. So that's Mary speaking.
2: While the refugee flows into Europe and other countries are being covered by the media. And it's interesting that our study is happening kind of amidst all of this uh, media coverage and really helping to bring more attention to their plight. Um, I think for those of us who've been working on these issues for some time, it's uh, simultaneously interesting and frustrating because it only tells part of the story. So I think it's important to recognize that we currently have the highest number on record of forcibly displaced people uh, since World War II. And that estimate uh, currently is about 65.3 million people. And of that kind of global figure, over 21 million of these individuals are refugees, meaning they've crossed national borders. Uh, More than 40 million are internally displaced persons, what we would call IDPs uh, within their own countries, and several millions more who would be considered stateless and not recognized as belonging to a particular country. Uh, The part that's missing from the media story is that 86% of those displaced are actually going to neighboring and what we would consider quote-unquote developing countries in the global south, where it is assumed, and I think hoped, that it will be a temporary stay uh, compared to those being resettled to Europe, Australia, Canada, or the U.S. So while many refugees still do reside in camps and kind of settlement settings, It's also really important to point out in this larger story that there's a huge trend of urbanization globally and that this affects and applies to refugees um, as as it does other immigrant um, populations. And we're finding that more than half of all refugees are now living in urban settings. So a huge demographic shift over the years there. And I think part of the story too, uh, there are two more important facts to point out. Uh, particularly important um, in terms of the impact on education. So the first is that the average duration of displacement is 20 years as conflicts become increasingly protracted in nature. Um, If you look at Somalia and Afghanistan, for example, they're going on their third and fourth decades of displacement, respectively. And so very different in terms of the, the nature of conflict and crisis and how, how long it is in terms of being protracted. And the second important point there is that 51% of refugees are under the age of 18. So when we think about education and the protracted nature of crisis and the young ages of those who are being displaced, um, it's something to, that we have to look at very seriously in terms of education. So it's important to tell the whole story and to tease out the similarities and differences across regions and countries. And certainly when we began this study, we didn't realize that it might take on even more importance given the, the growing media attention to the global refugee crisis this year.
0: In a, in a country like Syria, where, where many people are fleeing the country for safety or for, for other reasons, um, most of those people that cross Uh, out of Syria are ending up in countries that are bordering Syria. Is that, that's what you, um, what you were saying, is that most of the refugees are going to neighboring countries. So what sort of neighboring countries would that be for Syria? So
2: for Syria, there are a number of um, neighboring countries, but the the ones that are taking the bulk of the Syrian refugees, as you'll see and learn more through our study, are Lebanon, uh, Jordan, Turkey, um, and also Iraq.
0: And and they're taking a huge number of refugees compared to, say, countries in, in Europe or America or even Japan, where, where I live.
2: Correct. I mean, the interesting thing about the coverage is that many of the refugees that are being talked about in terms of coming into Germany or going into Australia or Canada or the U.S. or Japan... They're coming through very formal resettlement uh, procedures, and they're being essentially permanently relocated to those to those new host countries, which is very different from the refugees that are going into Jordan and Iraq and Turkey, for example, for the Syria, the larger Syrian refugee crisis. Um, the situation is different. Those refugees are deciding to leave. And cross the borders, it's not something that's being facilitated by the neighboring government. So the, the process through which they're moving across borders is very different. Um, and the way they're being received in the countries of asylum are very different. Um, so that's an important distinction to make.
0: That's right. And, and it seems like the, the, that sort of movement of people across borders um, in more of the informal way creates a huge amount of pressure uh, on those countries that are receiving thousands and hundreds of thousands of of, of people, um, but before we get into some of those pressures specifically on education, I, I just wanted to know what sort of which countries is your study looking at? Um, so that's Garnett.
1: I'll tell you a bit about our study. We did a multi-country study, and that included um, both a global survey of um, 16 different countries across the global south, and that in- those countries included Pakistan, Malaysia, Iran, Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, Egypt, Sudan, South Africa, Kenya, Cameroon, Uganda, Ecuador, Venezuela, Costa Rica, and Panama. And we selected countries um, with the highest proportion of an urban refugee population, so meaning um the highest number of urban refugees out of the total refugee population. And then we stratified this to represent um, four different regions, so the Middle East, Africa, um, Latin America, and the Caribbean, and Asia. Um, And we also selected countries to represent a range of approaches to providing education to urban refugees, and also a range of legal frameworks. So some countries are signatories to the 1951 Refugee Convention, others have not signed it, some have reservations. Um, And as Mary mentioned previously, we decided to focus on the global south because the majority of refugees are actually in these neighboring countries, so in low- and middle-income countries, closer to conflicts rather than um, the more developed OECD countries. And these countries are generally more dependent on um, international aid, through UNHCR or international NGOs and local NGOs to provide educational services. Um, So after we did this global survey, we then followed up with um, three country case studies. And um, we used the case studies to gather more in-depth information through interviews with stakeholders, namely UN um, officials and... um, NGOs, and we also visited schools. Um, So in our survey, we we surveyed um, 190 different respondents. Um, So we have a pretty good range. And then in the case studies, we interviewed approximately 28 to 30 um, different people in in each of the three countries. Um, So the three countries that we chose were Ecuador, Kenya, and Lebanon. And again, we wanted to have three different cases to represent sort of different approaches to providing education, um, different types of crises and conflicts, and different legal frameworks. So um, just to give you an example, in Ecuador, the majority of refugees are Colombian, um, 98%, and they are are fleeing the protracted civil war in Colombia, which doesn't receive as much media attention um, because it's been going on for decades. Um, In Kenya, you have a very diverse and heterogeneous population from um, different conflicts in the region, um, Somalia, South Sudan, Ethiopia, Burundi, Rwanda, etc. And then in Lebanon, of course, you have um, the majority of um, Syrian refugees, so approximately 1.5 million, so the highest per capita of refugees. And there are also Palestinian refugees, but that's sort of beyond the scope of this particular study um, so basically we looked at differences in these three cases and how they are addressing the issue of the provision of education so we also saw a variation in terms of um, the extent to which they integrate students into their local government schools or into community run schools or non-formal or NGO schools which we'll tell you a bit more about when we get to our findings
0: having such Large numbers of people flooding into to different countries must cause huge problems for governments, for social services. What sort of issues have you found that governments face when it comes to uh, refugees and education? So this is Elizabeth speaking.
3: It goes without saying that the specifics often depend on the host country, the number of refugees that they have, and where these refugees are from. And it also depends on the host country's reception to the refugees, specifically if they have camps or if there are no camps. And so when there are camps, and we can speak to, for example, in Kenya, there are large camps. And with the Syrian response, there are camps in both Turkey and Jordan, but there are not any in uh, Lebanon. And so when there are camps, uh, schools can often be set up and run entirely in these camps. And there are a lot of actors who might be involved, including the UN agencies or NGOs that can step in and set up camps. But when refugees are living in urban areas, uh, it provides—I mean—it presents uh, some m- more challenges, more complexity for governments. And, and so I think the big question really is where will these refugees in urban areas go to school? And so for many governments, the pressing question is really how can we get children, many of whom who have been out of school for years even, or who've had their schooling interrupted, how do we get them back into schools? And so for host governments, there are really a bunch of related policy questions that have to be ironed out along the way. And so the first is simply, like, will they be allowed into public schools? And in many countries, especially signatories to the 1951 Convention, they do open public schools to refugees. But in in certain countries, they are simply not allowed into public schools at all, although this is rare. But Malaysia is a good example of one of those countries. And so in these countries, civil society has to step up um, and really provide access to schooling, but, it, but then in, even in countries where public schools are opened to refugees, there are a bunch of other important questions and specific policies that have to be figured out, such as like, what are the admissions policies, what types of documents are needed for students to actually enroll in school, how do you determine what grade a student is in, so these are questions over grade placement. And then questions about accreditation, or how will we sort of evaluate and accredit a student's learning? Do they have access to taking the public exams that give them a degree or a diploma, for example? And so um, so let me just go into a little more depth here. So one question is just like, how many uh, refugees can uh, government schools absorb? It's what we call the absorptive capacity of the public schools. So... In some countries like Jordan and Lebanon, where there's been a huge influx of refugees all at once, um, these countries really don't have room in their public schools without opening up um, additional shifts. So these are what we call double shift schools. And so, um, because they just don't have enough spaces in the public schools, and so they open up an afternoon shift typically. And But this, again, raises other questions such as, uh, Like, do they have they often have to shorten the first shift, the morning shift? And so, does this then impact the quality of education for the citizens? Is one. And then there's the question of who will teach these additional classes. Will the government hire new teachers or will they ask um, the current teachers to take on the second shift as well? Which is often really difficult and straining. And, of course, who will pay for this additional, you know, these additional teachers? And so, and there's really concern that there are unintended consequences for this move to double shift, such as the quality. And, um, you know, and... So then there's also the question of grade placement, which poses, throughout our case studies, we found it, it poses difficulties in different ways in different countries. But for example, if you just think of a refugee child, for example, who maybe in their home country, they studied until grade four, but then they've been out of school for a couple years and they've forgotten a lot of what they've learned. And so now you have an older student, but who maybe is at a grade two level of education. The question, I mean, it's a legitimate and difficult policy question which is what grade should that student be placed in or what type of remedial education is really needed to bring them up to grade four and so in Kenya we've seen for example grade placement is a big issue with um, older students often young adults being placed into primary schools whereas Lebanon has approached this very differently and simply you know does not make accommodations for overage students and expects those students to go into accelerated learning programs essentially uh, non-formal programs they don't really want overage students in the same classrooms and so um, countries will approach this question quite differently but it also you know it's a it's a barrier or it creates issues because it's just simply often like what is the policy do they have to sit for an exam and whatnot and then um, It's also important to remember that education systems are large and they're often complicated bureaucracies. So, governments will face these issues communicating information that's often decided at the ministry level and communicating that down to the school, the local school level. And so, in some countries, there are decentralization policies. This is ongoing in Kenya, for example. And it also In Lebanon, there's a lot of autonomy at the local levels, but what this means is that policies of the centralized ministry aren't often, they're either not communicated or they're not followed at the local level. So it's not just setting the policies, it's also implementing them that really causes issues for countries. And then I just should add that uh, in urban settings and non-camp settings, generally, we find that both NGOs, civil society organizations, and governments face added complexity um, in actually reaching refugee children, first of all, because they're not as um, they're not. We often don't know where urban refugees are. They're more difficult to identify. They have to use. They might need more transportation. They often can't just walk to the local school in the camp. They need um, buses or whatnot, or the distances are further, and. It's also often more difficult for governments because they're coordinating a lot of different actors. And so governments might play a bigger role needing to coordinate civil society and local ministry um, offices and whatnot. And so there's, it's often an added uh, burden for government systems as well. So there, it's a lot of issues <laughs> that they're facing.
0: It sure sounds like it. I mean, have you found that um, this pressure that gets put onto the system of education because of such large numbers of um, people coming into the system. Does that foster a sort of resentment against those groups of refugees coming in by the local population?
3: I would say that, I mean... Yes. Yes. I mean, it is, it is not always the case. And I think that what I mean, let me just go back to your first question that you asked, Mary. Um, Just so you know, about 1 million Syrian refugees have requested asylum in Europe. And in in all of Europe. And in comparison, there are more than 2 million Syrian refugees in Turkey. There's between 1.5 and 2 million refugees in Lebanon, which has a pre-crisis population of 4 million people. And so and in Jordan, there are about 600,000 to a million Syrian refugees. We're not sure exactly. But so these countries, I mean, Lebanon, you can take, for example, as Garnet mentioned, has the highest per capita burden in the world and these are countries that um so initially maybe there's a lot of understanding or sympathy or definitely um often i mean there's there's definitely a lot of sympathy i would say from my experience and but there's also um there's also legitimate concerns over the effect of refugees on the local economy, on the use of social services, on the um, when the first shift is shortened and students, um, you know, national citizens, students, or Jordanian or Lebanese students are getting fewer or less instructional time, and there's concern over the quality of their education or um then there is definitely resentment. And in some cases, we see that, for example, UN agencies or donors of all different kinds will um, provide materials such as backpacks and textbooks to refugee children that sometimes are not provided to the national local um, populations and that can also breed resentment because many of the communities in which urban refugees settle are also very vulnerable communities and that's something I think we'll touch on later but there are are a lot of similarities between vulnerable, for example, vulnerable Lebanese or vulnerable uh, Ecuadorians and refugee children. and so there's often um, the fact that maybe refugees are seen as getting additional services that the local communities aren't getting can also be um, can also breed resentment in some cases.
0: So can you describe like the what sort of opportunities a child would have as an urban refugee?
2: Sure. and I think Elizabeth started to touch on this a little bit, but essentially, Uh, The options for refugees run the gamut of educational opportunities similar to those for students from the host country. Um, Something that's interesting to point out here actually is uh, historically, International organizations and host country governments try to provide refugees with access to education from their countries of origin. But this has proven, in many cases, to be very difficult, uh, given the need to have access to national curriculum materials and cross-border systems um, that would then allow for national examinations to take place and to be recognized and for kind of student learning to be certified in that process. And because of the nature of conflict and because things are essentially breaking down in the country that is affected by conflict, that is very difficult to actually have happen or to be able to sustain. So what happens now is that students typically study the curriculum of the host country and they take national exams in camps and cities alike. So even in Kenya, for example, the students who are in the camps, uh, they are in schools that are recognized by the ministry and they're sitting for exams and taking exams. And so the same thing is then happening for students in the urban centers. They are accessing public schools Taking national exams and, and getting certified through the Kenyan system, essentially. So, you know, with the movement toward what we're calling local integration in this sense, uh, many countries do allow refugees to enroll in public schools. Um, and of course, this is a, a big success in many, in many uh, senses in terms of um, kind of the policy shift that that entails. But at the same time, the right to enroll in school does not necessarily mean schools are actually accessible um, and that students are able to get in and stay in school. And so that's an important issue to point out, and I think we'll get into the, the barriers a little bit later in this conversation, hopefully. Um, but in short, you know, students have access to public schools, private schools, community-run schools. Again, these are always kind of highly context-specific, so it depends on what's happening um, in the cities around these different types of schooling options. But we do see this happening. Um, For older students, uh, the adolescents and youth who are amongst the displaced populations, um, again, depending on where they find themselves, they may have opportunities to participate in accelerated learning programs, which typically allow them to complete a full cycle of primary education in half the time. So if the country has a six-year primary education system, they would typically be able to do it in three years. And that's really important for students who are older, who have had disruptive education for a number of years, and it would you know, be kind of, it would be quite awkward to have a, a, an overage student in a kind of a lower primary grade. And that does happen, but the accelerated learning programs are meant to help mitigate that challenge. Um, and also to help retain students. Uh, Older students who are put kind of below their grade level have incredibly high dropout rates. So trying to figure out what are the range of educational programs to offer these students is really important. Um, another uh, set of programs that are often offered uh, to refugee students, particularly uh, uh, adolescents and youth, uh, are the vocational education programs. And sometimes those uh, training programs include exposure and uh, literacy development um, to, to offer kind of offset uh, the disruptive education that they might have already experienced, and then that is combined with skills development that would help them and their families earn a living. In our study, we've tried to look a little bit. It's been hard to get a lot of information, but in some of these contexts, there are also ICT interventions, so um, information communication technologies and leveraging technology to expand access to education. Uh, there is a program called Ineza in Kenya that helps students get access to the Kenyan curriculum. Uh, through their mobile phones, with or without uh, kind of internet or data access. And the Inasa program includes things like quizzes and homework help and ask a teacher tools. And we're finding that students both in and out of school are apparently able to access this program and to try to continue their their educational pursuits, um, even if they aren't uh, embedded within a formal uh, or even private school in Kenya. And I think just another interesting point to make about the schooling options is uh, at a global level, and we're starting to see this in these different countries that we're looking at for this study, but in addition to these different types of schooling options, there's also an increasing interest uh, to look at the entire range of educational opportunities um, for everyone, but including vulnerable groups like refugees, so that they can pursue early childhood through primary, secondary, and tertiary education, and this is really important. Again, you know, back to that point about the protracted nature of crisis and how long young people are finding themselves um, in countries of asylum. And so, you know, the idea here is that if they're able to continue with their studies in in different uh, forms, um, you know, if and when refugees are able to return uh, to their countries of origin or be resettled to a third country or, you know, truly become locally integrated, it really behooves all of us uh, to ensure that they continue to be productive and contributing members of society And, uh, you know, the continued educational and vocational opportunities that are afforded to them will help them do just that.
0: So we've discussed um, a lot about the governmental pressures uh, that that national education systems face when they have an influx of thousands or millions of refugees. Um, What sort of effects does do refugee children, children that cross borders and, and enter school systems that are, are foreign to them, what, what sort of effects do you see happening to the children uh, involved in this uh, movement?
2: Yes, that's a good question and, and something that uh, I certainly hope we're able to kind of build on our study and look at, because um, our study was looking more at, you know, governmental actors' perspectives and the international actors' perspectives. But I think from our own respective work, we could speak to that question a little bit. You know, certainly it's uh, it's challenging, right, it, depending on their ages and what they've already experienced, um, in many cases, the trauma that they've seen up close and, and personally, um, what what that impact is, and how that kind of carries uh, with them into the school setting. And so uh, and a, kind of apart from that personal story and their trajectory amidst displacement, which is huge and has to be kind of taken into consideration as kids are coming into school, they're also being asked to navigate perhaps a very new curriculum, um, perhaps a very, you know, new language of instruction, um, teachers that are more or less prepared to actually work with them. And... um, And they may be in, obviously, in a country that they're not familiar with and that their parents or extended family members may not be familiar with. And so they're all kind of being thrown in a kind of state of flux uh, and trying to figure out how to access education and what the procedures and policies are for doing so. Um, But I think what's uh, important to remember in, in many of these cases, while you know, refugee children and families are fleeing for, for you know, a range of reasons because of the conflict, um, whether they're being directly targeted or their lives or their communities are being disrupted in their, in their homes, um, one of the driving forces for many of these families to flee, um, in, in addition to just being safe and being protected and, and being secure, tends to be education. Uh, families recognize how important education is to their kids futures and they're willing to you know take on incredible uh, life journeys and and treks uh, across you know foreign territories and into new spaces um, to make sure that their kids have access to education and so I think the kids themselves feel that I mean obviously depending on how old they are and how they're able to make sense of what's happening in their, in their own countries, in their own homes. Um, but I think that's something that we need to continue to put in the forefront of our minds uh, as we think about how we're you know, writing policies or implementing programs for these students, um, is that they first and foremost are, are also you know, highly valuing. Um, and in most cases, there are certainly exceptions to the rule, but in most cases, how much they value education.
0: So having studied all of these different countries around the world and, and the refugee crisis or crises all around the world, what sort of recommendations are you kind of drawing um, in the best ways to provide education to refugees?
1: So I can speak to the recommendations from our survey respondents um, and tell you a little bit about what we've found so far. So. Um, Interestingly enough, when we asked them to name the top three uh, recommendations, the, f- the, the most cited recommendation, which approximately 48% of respondents um, named, was to actually integrate these refugee students into public or government schools. So this is the top policy recommendation. Um, so this would mean integrating them into the, a stable education system so that they can be placed in the appropriate grade. They can sit for exams and um, receive proper certification. Um, So interestingly, this is across the four regions that we surveyed. So we see this um, in Asian countries, Latin American countries, Middle Eastern countries, and African countries. Um, And UN agencies are more likely to suggest this than um, international or national NGOs. Um, Even though most, organizations think that integration is the best way to address this. They, they don't necessarily see this as um, having access to quality or inclusive education. So it's not enough just to have students in the schools, but we need to sort of get at what does that mean to have them in the schools. You know, So there we still see lots of issues in terms of um, discrimination and xenophobia. For instance, in Ecuador, even though All students, regardless of their nationality, have the right to education. Um, These refugee students are not being integrated to the extent that one would like to see. Um, So another really important recommendation um, that approximately 30% of our respondents mentioned was to support teacher training. And this is especially important in countries in Latin America um, and African countries, um, because there's a need both to help bolster the skills of national teachers who need to accommodate refugee learners in their classrooms, um, but also to train refugee teachers who are, are, you know, working with the students in the camps or in the the community-run schools. In addition, this also includes things like psychosocial support or second language support or transitioning to the host country curriculum, because often there's, there's a gap. They don't know how to work with these vulnerable students who've been fleeing conflict um, or who've undergone very difficult circumstances, and you might be dealing with uh, different languages as well, which is also difficult. Um, So we see some initiatives um, around teacher training for refugee teachers in Kenya, um, and as well as a desire for for more of that, especially in in cases like Ecuador. Um, And then a third the, a third commonly reported recommendation from the survey was this idea of supporting more community-run schools. Um, so this is another model for providing education in addition to integrating students into government schools. A lot of NGOs and civil society actors support these community-run schools that are often run um, by the refugee community. And this is particularly important. We see this in um, among Asian and the Asian context and the Middle East context. So, other recommendations that were mentioned in the survey were um, the need for advocacy, um, also accommodation of alternative education programs. So, this might include accelerated learning programs or bridging programs, um, especially for those with interrupted education. As Mary mentioned earlier, there are a lot of students; um, they might be over age or they might not be in the correct Grade placement because they've been out of school for several years, um, and then another commonly mentioned recommendation, um, particularly among the the NGOs, was this provision of non-formal education. Um, so, in um, the case of Lebanon, there's support for these non-formal education programs that would serve as bridging programs that would allow students to then enter into the formal education. Um, and then in Kenya, you see. There is a desire for French-speaking communities to have community schools that will ha- would help them, um, you know, learn in French and then eventually, possibly, transition into English medium of instruction. Um, and in Ecuador, this non-formal education, it's it's more in terms of um, arts and theater and sports and other approaches to integration. So. We do see in our research a, a tension between formal education and non-formal education, and sort of the best way to, to approach the problem. Um, you know whether it's just to integrate them into the schools and if into the national schools, and if that's really sufficient, um, given the fact that you know there's overcrowding in a lot of cases, and that the quality is not always high, and that there's a lot of discrimination and um, xenophobia that, that's persistent. Um, so those were the main recommendations that came out of the survey. Um, there's another recommendation that came out of the case studies is more of the need for reliable and long-term funding. Um, so we see now there's there's sort of a tension, this um, tension between seeing education as um, part of you know, the development sector and sort of thinking long-term and planning um, for longer-term support versus humanitarian aid funding, um, which is usually shorter term. And a lot of countries are a bit concerned, for instance, in Ecuador, because there's, you know, the the peace process going on now in Colombia. They're concerned that some of the aid might be withdrawn, um, even though there's the refugee crisis won't necessarily end. Um, you know, so a lot of the funding is now going towards the Middle East and the Syrian crisis, even though in a lot of cases, you have these protracted crises, and they still depend on on this funding.
0: So I know you're in the middle of your research project, um, but have you been able to identify future research directions uh, when it comes to refugee education?
3: Yes, we have a lot, actually. I think our the good part of our study is it's just the tip of the iceberg and it's pointed to a lot of directions uh, for future research so one of the most important areas is essentially it's easier to do research on access it's easier to measure how many refugees are in school but really we also need to think about quality and learning and there's much more emphasis now on trying to sort of um understand uh, refugee Uh, refugees are putting you know the quality of their learning and Um, retention and graduation etc and just generally as donors and other international organizations are now engaged more and more in providing direct support to national education systems as mary mentioned as like the policy orientation towards integrating refugees into um, public systems we now want to sort of understand is that support having the desired effect in terms of both System strengthening of the at the ministry level, and then also student outcomes. Some other issues are the at the policy level. We're really trying to understand um, what are good practices for certifying learning and really um, making sure that it's transferable. That that these certifications or degrees are transferable because we know that. Refugee children are very mobile, and there and so they may be in different countries. They may actually be, you know, traveling through different countries or different countries' school systems, and they um, may. There's a lot of different uh, options for where they eventually end up. They may be. They may stay in the host country. They may get repatriated. They may get re-settled uh, in Europe, for example. And so there's a lot of questions over what type of degrees will actually. Um, allow them you know what what models and do we have for their sort of for their degrees to be transferable to those different settings and then another area where we've thought of that we think is an important area for future uh, research is a, a comparative analysis of refugee students in so-called developed countries like North America and Europe in Canada and Germany versus developing countries. In a lot of cases, we think that some of the issues they're facing, such as language of instruction, for example, in, in integration or facing stereotypes or discrimination, might actually be very similar. And so there's a lot we can learn from a comparative analysis of these um of these of different countries
0: it sounds like a very full research agenda going forward so and so so mary elizabeth and garnett thank you so much for joining fresh ed today it was really really fun to talk
3: thanks for
2: having us yes it's been great thanks thank you
0: mary mendenhall garnett russell and elizabeth buckner work at teachers college columbia university if you would like to see some of their research photos showing urban refugee education, please check out freshedpodcast.com. Next week, I speak with Mario Novelli about education, inequality, and capitalism. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Fresh Ed contributors include Rolf Straubhar, Eric Lehman, D. Brent Edwards Jr., Chrissy Monahan, and Aaron Baxter. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Please be sure to visit us at freshedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.